Good morning, everybody. I'm not going to do a detailed exposition of the reading. Thank you, Un, for that this morning. Um, the Revelation, just as a short word, is not a puzzle book. It's supposed to reveal things uh, particularly best understood from the perspective of the original audience. It's a picture book. And as Un read it, and you read about the two harvests, you get the idea. You know what's going on. It doesn't need too much explaining, I don't think. So what I'm going to do, and I hope you'll forgive me, is I'm going to have a rather long-winded preamble about the kind of background behind the revelation and its original audience to help appreciate how this passage may have applied firstly to those people living at that time and then to us today. So um, that's the idea. So I think before we um, go on, can we just um, have a short prayer and just ask for God's help? Almighty Heavenly Father, Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we pray, Lord, that uh, on this day, when we remember our fathers and we remember you, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for all the wonderful provision that you've made for our lives. And so, Lord, as we look to consider this passage, this reading from the book of Revelation, we ask, Lord, that you be with us, that your spirit would work among us and give us encouragement and give us a challenge this day to spur us on to a greater faith and commitment in our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his precious name. Amen. If you got your notice when you came in this morning, you will see that the title of the message is Don't Compromise Your Faith in Jesus Christ. And I don't know if you're trying to make connections between that and the reading this morning to figure out how, is, how does that work. But I want to talk this morning about the Christian life. And a few years ago, I was introduced to a term, which I rather liked, that talked about a living a vital Christian life. And the word vital means you can't do without it. And a vital Christian life, in my mind, is not simply saying, I believe in Jesus, and I've received uh, the fact that he's died for my sin and risen from the dead, but it's also about a sense of the reality of Jesus Christ living in us when we leave church and when we go to the various places where God has put us throughout the, the week, to our workplaces, to our various groups, to our studies. In those places, when we have to make decisions as we do throughout life, we want to know, is Jesus Christ the Lord of everything in my life? I don't know if you've been in positions, perhaps in your places of work, where somebody might say to you, just write down five o'clock on your job card. Everyone else is doing it, but it's only four o'clock. And there's a conviction in my spirit because of the reality of Jesus in my life that if I do this, and we're just talking about small matters, not the big things, if I do this, is Jesus really Lord in my life? So the question is, 
as we go through life, does Jesus Christ have the lordship in all that I do, no matter where I go and what decisions I have to make in life? In this fallen world, there are pressures upon us in a spiritual battle to compromise and to accommodate and to make allowances for a world that says to us, soften up your faith in Jesus Christ. Just relax. Come this way. Go that way. It can be really hard in a world, particularly if that world ups the tempo of hostility towards Christianity, to remain true to Jesus Christ no matter what. We have it easy here in New Zealand, but in some countries they don't. And perhaps those people understand the book of Revelation more than what we do. In John's world, when John was writing, he was writing to an audience that were seriously put under pressure to compromise their faith, even to give it up and to abandon it and to walk away from Jesus Christ. And so to understand that, I want to explain a little bit of the background or the history behind this in order to put us in the picture of what was going on at that time. When the New Testament was written, pretty much, it was written within the reign of a family of emperors, beginning from Caesar Augustus until the time, the sudden death by suicide of Emperor Nero. When the Emperor Nero took his life and the New Testament had been written, finished written, and we read, pray for your governments, obey those in the land who have put there to rule you. Following that, in the year 69, the whole of the Roman Empire was put into disarray. It was like it had been suddenly wounded and many scrambled for the throne. And I need to make a correction with the young adults. There were four emperors that scrambled for the throne in that year, not three. There was civil fighting, there was unrest, and the feeling was that the whole of this great Roman Empire would suddenly collapse and be done with. Somehow, miraculously, a whole new empire arose from the ashes, or not an empire, but a family dynasty. And the objective of that family dynasty was to up the tempo on the citizens in the empire. And the way they did that was to enforce more strongly than ever that Roman citizens need to worship the Roman gods. They need to offer incense and pay them homage. homage. Also, there was the imperial or emperor cult. And that was where the emperor was considered to be a god. And everyone had to reverence the emperor of the Roman Empire. It was very difficult for Christians to get away from the change of mood or the increase in temperature after the New Testament was written at the end of the first century. It was pervasive. It was everywhere. And John in Asia Minor in the west of modern-day Turkey was making a stand for Jesus Christ. And he said, I'm not going to compromise. I'm going to stand for Jesus. And you know what happened to him? He was exiled to the island of Patmos. He had been encouraging his fellow Christians in the seven churches in Revelation, stay strong. Don't compromise under the circumstances. The heat is up. The pressure is on. But stay strong. They couldn't escape it. 
I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and in patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus that he wouldn't compromise, no matter what the outcome. And he feared for those who were left on the mainland, what's going to happen to them? Are they going to stay strong? Are they going to accommodate the culture? Is society going to get to them? Are they going to crack? And in that condition, God gave, through Jesus, through an angel, visions that even though they're mysterious and strange, in the first instance, they spoke into the world of those people and what they were going through. They couldn't escape the cult of the emperor. At the time, the emperor was Domitian. And on one occasion in Rome, he said to a large crowd there, you are to address me as your Lord and God. You couldn't get away from it. Here's a book entitled Rituals and Power, the Roman Imperial Cult in Asia Minor. And the way that the author wants to convey this is they minted coins with the emperor's name on it. And if you can see in there, there is the emperor in a temple above and below are the citizens of Rome with a sacrificial altar offering homage to the emperor. You couldn't buy, sell or trade without the coinage of the day. It pervaded everything. In every city uh, throughout Asia Minor, particularly in these seven churches, there was a temple built for the worship of the emperor. Here's a grand one in Ephesus, which was the first of the seven churches um, that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. A great temple that was built to offer worship and sacrifices to the gods. And in this was a colossal statue of the emperor Domitian himself. People came and they offered sacrifices. The priests were there to serve. Here are the remains of that colossal statue that stood seven meters tall. You can see it in a museum in Ephesus. There is the statue of Domitian and smaller ones were in other temples throughout the empire. They couldn't get away from it. The pressure was on. And it became a very much a public thing whether you were a Christian or not because festivals were held and they went through the streets and people offered sacrifices. And if you didn't fit in, you were not fitting in with the empire. And what would happen would be that neighbors would secretly dob in Christians and they would suffer for it. In the young adult study, we considered a document that still survives that was written 16 years after the book of Revelation a letter from a young lawyer who was 30 years old who was sent to the north of Asia Minor to sort out the Christians. And he wrote a letter to the Emperor Trajan that said this, in regards to the Christians, I've had some secret pamphlets telling me the names of people and I've brought them to trial and I test them in this way. I ask them, are you a Christian? And they know what the penalty is for it if they are. And if they say no three times, then I bring in the idols of the Roman gods and they follow my words. They offer uh, their allegiance to the Roman gods. Then I bring in a statue of you, the emperor, and in this time it was Trajan. They are to offer sacrifices to them. If I'm still not satisfied, I use one more test. And that is I ask them to publicly and openly curse the name of Jesus Christ 
And he writes to the Emperor Trajan, this the Christians cannot do. Do you think I'm doing the right thing? And Emperor Trajan writes back and says, yes, Pliny, I think you're on the right course. You're taking the right track. But we're a civilized nation. Sort the Christians out, but don't accept anonymous pamphlets. It's not in keeping with the spirit of our age as the great empire as we are. In that letter, Christians 20 years earlier, just before the book of Revelation, had given up. There were those later who said, no, I gave up a long time ago when they were dobbed in. People were giving up on their faith. It became progressively difficult for Christians to say simply, Jesus Christ is Lord. And I think in our world today, even though we're tested in small ways in our workplaces, wherever we are, it's hard to imagine Christians being put under that kind of pressure. I know Matthew, where's Matthew Telepati, is he? Oh, Matthew. I know that I, I, the, the Christians in India will know what that's like, to be under that pressure. And I remember you sharing with us about a fanatical Hindu government who wants to cleanse India of Muslims and Christians. It's hard to imagine being put to the test and it's difficult for me to imagine myself in that position, being asked to compromise or to accommodate how I would stand. I guess it's a question that the book of Revelation could ask of all of us. Where do we stand where regimes or societies up the temperature? Do we know when and where it is that governments and authorities cross the line? In Nazi Germany, with the rise of the Nazi party and Adolf Hitler, the churches there, many of them didn't see what was coming. Only a few people said, this is wrong. Only a few people said, Jesus Christ is the Lord and the head of the church, not the Fuhrer. What do we do when we're put under pressure? In order to address this issue in the churches, a number of visions are given in the book of Revelation. And one of them, the one that Ern read to us, is the one of the two harvests. And strange as it is, it addresses this issue. It says things in the forms of a powerful vision that straightforward words can't do. Don't compromise your faith in Jesus Christ. This says it far more powerfully to those, those Christians at that time. It's in line with what Jesus taught. Explain to us, Jesus, the parable of the weeds in the field. And Jesus answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will, be, they will throw them into the blazing furnace, where they'll be weeping wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has hears, 
ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. In the visions that were given to us, there are two harvests. Here is the first one. It doesn't mean a huge, uh, it doesn't require me to explain too much. But this is what John saw in the vision. And this is what he's conveying to a church who is saying, can I sit on the fence? Can I have Jesus? And can I have the empire as well? Actually, what I did forget to tell you was that in the letters to the seven churches, there there were those in the church who were encouraging Christians to compromise and sit on the fence. We can do both. We can, uh, in some way, get around this, fit in with society, and still have Jesus. And the message of Revelation is, no, you can't. You can't live on a corrugated iron fence with one foot on each side without ending up with a split personality. Sorry, now's not the time for jokes. You can't do both. And so this is what the message is saying in a visionary form, not in plain words. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle, and reap because the harvest because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe and so he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested I don't know if you've seen pictures or had this idea of the grim reaper you've seen pictures of that with a guy in a dark black hoodie You can hardly see his eyes. He's got a big scythe. That's not the picture that's being conveyed here. This picture is supposed to convey to the people who were suffering in that time, as it is to us, this is the happiest time for Christians, or ought to be the happiest time when all the struggles, when all the difficulties of life are done away with, when we are gathered up into God's everlasting kingdom, there's no more pain, no more suffering, No more tears. There are angels in heaven who are waiting and longing for the command to say, now is the time. Now is the time to bring in those who have remained faithful and true to me. It's not a scary picture. It's supposed to be a most happy time. When I see the sharp sickle glinting in the sun, I think it's quick. There's very little time, no delay. Boy, I wonder if the angels are waiting, saying, Lord, faithful and true, how long? How long before the Lord Jesus returns? We don't know. No one knows for the day or the hour, but what a day that will be when it comes. It will be quick. In the twinkling of of an eye, if 1 Corinthians is anything to go by, oh, have I jumped? Oh, look. Oh, I may have jumped ahead. That's all right. I can, um, in 1 Corinthians 15, I think verse 52 onwards, it says that when the last trumpet is sounded, when the angels are sent out, we will be changed. The perishable will put on the imperishable and the mortal will put on immortality in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. I don't know what a twinkling eye looks like. 
I know what a blinking eye looks like. In a quick moment, and then shall the saying come to pass, where, O death, is your victory, where, O grave, is your sting? On that day. And then John is given a second harvest, which we read from verse 17. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the cluster of the gr- clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. Grapes. Oh, there it is. Grapes are usually a symbol of God's blessing. Not in this case. The grapes are gathered and they're put in the winepress of God's wrath and they are trampled and the blood flows for 1,600 stadia. Let's not get hung up on the details, but I like details. It's kind of like if you're heading south, it's from here to the Hawke's Bay. If you're heading north, it's up to Whangarei. If you're going out to Raglan, it's off into the ocean and out off the other side to Waihi, up this high. The idea is it's big. It's the day of judgment. And it's something that in the Christian church we don't talk about that much. It's not PC. But there is a day when Jesus Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. There's no getting around it. It's in the Bible. There's only two camps. And so if there's anyone in the churches in John's day saying, oh, let's just relax, let's just take it easy, they don't want to get caught out. If people are in two minds, where do I want to be? And they get the message and they hear what the Spirit of God is saying and they have the ears to hear, the reward is too great for temporal compromises with the world when you know that the line has been crossed. Jesus Christ must be Lord not just in the big things in our life, but even in the small day-to-day things. Imagine uh, this uh, in getting close to closing. Imagine uh, you were in a workplace and um, somebody said to you, something had gone wrong and they said to you, there's a case that has to go to court and I want you to back me up as the boss and just uh, say that we didn't do anything wrong. And you know in your spirit, as the Holy Spirit prompts you, that if you are going to be prepared to lie, even just in this small thing like this, not the big issues, in some way or another, I'm compromising my faith in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And you go around, you ask people for advice. What shall I do? And people are saying, look, don't see it as a lie. Just see it as a way of protecting your future and your family, making sure you get your wage and you've got food on the table. So don't see it that way. Just do. Your boss has told you to do this. Just do it. And you've got other people, Christian friends, who are saying, you know, that is kind of, you're not supposed to bear a false testimony in court. You know what the Bible says? I think it probably is crossing the line. Oh, that doesn't help. What do I do? I'm so confused. I want to accommodate. I want to compromise. 
And imagine going to bed that night and at four o'clock in the morning, you have this powerful dream come upon you. And in the dream, there's beautiful music. There's a beautiful blue sky. And you see one like a son of man on a cloud appear in your dream. And you think how wonderful it is that the sickle is swiped, the harvest is done, all my troubles or cares have gone away with. And then the mood changes in the dream, and out of your deep slumber, you start moving around in the bed. And everything goes dark, and there's another harvest. And the harvest is put in the wine press, and the grapes are pressed. And you wake up in a sweat, shaking, and you think, no matter what, I'm not going to compromise my faith in Jesus. I'm not going to testify, even if it costs me my job, and I've got to wash dishes at a restaurant to make ends meet. And if that's the effect that it has, then that's how the revelation was supposed to have an effect on its original audience and on ongoing audiences who understand the message of it. Don't compromise. Because the eternal outcome is too great. When we finished our series in the young adults, I read to them from a reader's guide on the book of Revelation, and I'll just read this in closing. The book of Revelation is not a book for the faint-hearted. Its message is deeply disturbing. It unsettles us. It urges us to reevaluate some of the most fundamental of our convictions our loyalties and our commitments. What are our true values as Christians? What is really the most important thing in our lives when all is said and done? What would we be willing to die for? What does the evidence of our daily lives say about who we really are? These are the kinds of questions that the book of Revelation urges us to ask of ourselves. As I said, the book of Revelation is not a book for the faint-hearted.